A great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the lake. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell down at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be be made well and live. And so he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in upon him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. And she had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said to herself, if I but touch his clothing, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But putting aside what they had said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, just believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion with people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And then he put them all outside. And he took the the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum which means, little girl, rise up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was about 12 years old. At this, they were overcome with amazement, and he strictly ordered them that no one should know of this and told them instead to give her something to eat. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Andy and I want to explain some things about this story before we dive into the questions we generated about it this week because it turns out that the way the story is structured matters. So this is told three separate ways in uh, the Gospels. It's told in Mark, it's told in Matthew, and it's told in Luke. If you're looking, that's um, Matthew 9 and Luke 8. And it's actually two stories, you notice, right? There's Mark loves to do this thing where he sort of points at what's important by bracketing stories, kind of making a sandwich of them. And you can always tell if something's really important if he has layers. Like the cream in. and an Oreo. That's right. Like right in the middle, the cream and the Oreo is what you want to pay attention to. And so he sandwiches these stories, and he does something really interesting with them that makes us realize how important it is for Mark to hang together this way. He uses the same words and the same themes in both stories. So we know they go together because he says a number of things over and over again that enlighten each story kind of inside out. So the first thing, did you notice any themes, any repeated things in the story? Did anything pop into your mind and say, oh, I heard that already? One thing that I heard over and over again was daughter. 
Over and over again, the women in the story are called daughter. The other thing is that there's a crowd. There's, there's lots of crowds in, Mark's, but in, in Mark, but in this story in particular, there's a crowd. And those crowds press in on Jesus, and they pressure him over and over again. In the first story, they pressure him in a way that is um, kind of overwhelming. In the second one, he sends them away because of that pressure. There's another thing. He, there's a theme of 12 years in this story. The woman hemorrhages for 12 years, and the little girl is 12 years old. And that matches the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is a really holy number for Judaism, and it points toward uh, sort of the audience of the story. And some, we just need to note that this is about a people who is waiting for the Messiah, is waiting for the Messiah. This number 12 shows us that. And then over again, we hear that people are falling down, falling down, falling down. So we know these stories hang together because of those, those things. And in both stories, with the woman with the hemorrhage and with the little girl who is dead, and as Andy and I noted in some of our things, she is not just sleeping. Jesus is using some sort of tricky language there when he says she's asleep. The, the Greek really means that she, was, uh, she had become quite dead, is the, is the phrase in the Greek. She is all dead. Not right? like Princess Bride. Not like the Princess Bride. Not mostly Bride. dead. Not mostly dead. All the way. So, in both of these cases, in uh, Jewish tradition, under the temple system, that would have made Jesus, by touching them, ritually unclean and unable to participate in some traditional practices and rituals. And so we know these go together because they've been, they both have those things in common, right? So, those are all important to know as we're reading and explaining the story because they all matter to how you interpret it. When Andy and I were reading this this week, I was thinking about my parents. So I grew up in a household with two doctors. I'm a, I would have been a third-generation physician if I had caved to pressure. And um, thank God I didn't, and I got this wonderful job instead. <laughs> but I remember my parents talking about, um, when I was growing up, uh, working in the ER, they were trauma docs, and they would have to triage people. You know this phrase? So you, the way you triage folks is you kind of mark them with colors, and you say, oh, you know, um, this person is in most need of medical care. This person is in least need. And then you figure out who to treat first based on that. And often, with triage, what you do is you say, that person is beyond help, so we're going to put our energy where the most good can be done where it's most likely we can help. So in fact, people get left behind when they're in a lot of trouble because they cannot be helped. In other situations, like in the ER, you might see that it goes exactly the opposite direction, right? It's the person with the gunshot wound that gets the first attention, and me with my uh, you know, cut finger, my, my pulled nail or whatever, is gonna get last. And, but there is constantly this sense of hierarchy and order and who gets treated first. This is the way the world works. I remember when I, I was in Haiti in 2006, and I was helping my dad and my stepmom on a medical mission there. And we, had, um, we were in the mountains in Dayamon, um, Passport of Prince, and I was the lucky duck who got to give people their shots. It was really interesting and fun to work in Creole Haitian. It's not a language I speak. And so um, we were constantly trying to sort people out and figure out who needed help without using a language that most of us were fluent in. And I remember that my dad, uh, at one point on our third day there, watched as a uh, woman pushed a man in a wheelbarrow up the hill, up the mountain toward us. 
And he said, bring me that person first. And there was a line of hundreds of Haitians who had come from all over, all over the mountain, um, walking some of them for days to get this medical treatment that was available because of my parents. And so um, he let this person jump the line. And it caused a huge amount of chaos. Except that he said, my job here is to help people who need it most. And that person needs it most. And so in that case, I remember so many times over the years, I've remembered how it felt so holy and so important that my dad had made eye contact with that man and with that woman and had seen them where they were and had called out to them and said, you get to spend time here first. You're in front of me and you get to do that. Now, there were lots of other people who were not as happy about that as they were. And there was a lot of fighting, actually, in the crowd. I was first in line. I deserve this more. My daughter is sicker than that man, and legitimately so. But it taught me that the world isn't always fair or just. It doesn't always work the way that we think it should, because in an ideal situation, it would have gone differently. Dad would have been able to treat everyone the same. Right? So that's the way the world works and some of the things that I push back in this story about. But Andy, you have some opinions about how maybe the kingdom of God works instead. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not how, well, it's clearly not how Jesus works. And I, I, this, this seems to be every time that I get the opportunity to look at these texts and to preach, I keep coming back to the same thing over and over again. And that is how Jesus has this tendency to pay attention to those folks that others are not paying attention to. The people who have been outcast, who have been marginalized, who have been oppressed. And we see the same thing here in this story. Things you should, you should know about um, Jairus. Jairus is kind of a, a, a mucky muck in the temple, in the temple system, the synagogue, right? He's not like the, the rabbi or the person in, in charge totally, but he's sort of the person in charge of facilities. He's, we, we joke he's the about, Joe Perky of, yeah, the, yeah, of he's, the synagogue. He's important. He's the person who people would go to and be like, and complain about the uncomfortable pews or something like that. I don't want to bother the pastor with this, but, but this is a person of importance. And so this is a person who would usually get immediate attention for people. People would pay immediate attention to Jairus. And he would get immediate attention. He was used to that privilege. And so when he came to Jesus and said, you know, my daughter is dying... Jesus heads on the way. The expectation is, yeah, you should. After all, I'm Jairus, right? But then we read this little episode where this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, which, by the way, makes her unclean and makes her an outcast in the community. This poor woman sneaks, has to sneak has to creep up and somehow can't approach Jesus. That would be uncalled for. Probably people would do something terrible to her for having the gall to approach Jesus and to speak to him. And so she just creeps up and says, if I just can touch his clothes, then I trust something good will happen. There's, I just trust that this, this person is that amazing. And so she reaches and touches his clothes. And it tells us in that moment, she is healed. So it's taken care of. 
Jesus could have just kept going. After all, Jairus' daughter was going to die. And he could have been like, ooh, that was weird, and kept moving. But instead, he stops. And he said, hey, something happened here. Who touched my, my clothes? I love, always love the disciples' response. He's like, come on, tell? Jesus. How are we split? Are you look, have you seen this crowd? Come on. Are you kidding me? We don't know. But he stops and takes the time to point out and to find out this woman who probably is feeling just ashamed and doesn't want to be found out, but finally confesses. And then he looks at this person who has been outcast and says, daughter. He calls her a family name. And again, says, you are now clean. You're included. You're accepted. He might as well have said, like he said the last couple of times I've preached, go home and be with the people that you belong with. He takes the time to do this, even though the privileged person has the more immediate need. He makes sure that he points out that this woman is acceptable in their culture and should be accepted and should be welcomed back in. We see this over and over and over in the life of Jesus and the way that he treats folks like this. I I can't help but be amazed even every single time, even though it gets to be something that he just does. It's the way of Jesus. And yeah, because he took the time to do this, the daughter of Jairus dies. But Jesus has got resurrection hope, right? We'll get to that place. But first I want to tell an, an anecdote that has something to do with how... You know, Jesus took this time, though there was something urgent, something that could have been even considered more pressing. He took the time to be with this person who was struggling to draw her back in. This last week, we, uh, for those of you who don't know, I also manage the, the winter shelter that we have every night here where folks have an opportunity to stay with us every night. And uh, we had someone who, um, well, I'll say this. The rule is that everyone has to be off the property by 7 a.m. Everyone's expected to be woken up, have their stuff together, and be moved along by 7 o'clock. And sometimes people take a little more time, and there's grace and patience. Because and, uh, the rest of the, the staff needs to finish cleaning the space and tie things together, lock up, and go. We had a woman who... Uh, was having a particularly rough morning. It was taking her a very, very long time to get ready to go. And it was past 7.30 by this point. And she was just struggling to pull everything together and get all of her stuff packed and just eventually sat down and just started weeping. Just feeling so overwhelmed and frustrated because the reality is that she was going to be heading out into the day with no real destination, no real place to be. And one of my staff, in what I will call a picture of Jesus, one of my staff, complete with rubber gloves on, probably was going to clean the bathroom or to do something like that, pulled a chair over, sat, and just looked and said, tell me about it. Tell me about it. Where are you at right now? What are you thinking? 
My staff stays 12 hours every night. They work 12-hour shifts. They stay up all night long. And yet in that moment, that person took the time to stop and to say, the, the toilets can wait. The rest of the cleanup can wait. There is someone hurting, and I'm going to take the time to stop. And if I'm late getting out of here, fine. But I'm going to love this person in this moment. We see Jesus doing this over and over again in the face of these other pressing things, even the death of an important person. He says, no, you matter. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't do it. You, immediately, right in front of me, you matter. His care is across the board. Okay, let me pull it together. You take over for a second. <laughs> Such a good story. I feel like we should pause and hold on to it, actually. You said Jesus has resurrection hope. And yeah. he hasn't even been to the cross yet, right? But in this story... The woman who has the hemorrhage, her suffering is described as, be, I mean, the language is the same as the suffering that Jesus has at the cross. Mm-hmm. And it's like he has some sort of connection to that and to her. And then with the little girl, that death, she, he says, rise up, just like rising up. I mean, the language is the same, yeah, resurrection the same language, resurrection. right? And so that what it draws me into and makes me think about it, just these two stories together, is how... In fact, what he's pointing at ultimately is what will happen later through him or is happening already through him and we'll see at the cross and the empty tomb, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that this is, he doesn't, he can pay attention to people in this way because death and sin and evil will all have been negated through that right they will no longer have the last word and he's just showing what that means and what it looks like and i you know i I always want jesus in these moments to like take a moment with the crowd since he has them all there and they're pressing in on him (laughs) and to say did you see what i just did there yeah 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 yeah. do do you see (laughs) what i'm actually saying right now by doing this that did you get it? Yeah, he did never you, does that. He never ever no. says. He never says, hey, did you notice I paid attention to the person you all aren't paying attention to? That's what you need to do, everyone. He never does that. No, we just get the illustration through the story, yeah. which is fascinating. And I wonder if it's because he knows that the real illustration is to come. Yeah. Um, and then there's, there's this, like, every single person in that crowd if they were really, if we, I will put us there. Sure. If we were really paying attention, we, we are asked to be and become Jesus in these moments, but we're also asked to receive that kind of attention and love in those moments mm-hmm. and to recognize that this is how much God loves and pays attention to each one of us, mm-hmm. um, that this is for everybody, not just certain kinds of people and not yeah. just in a certain order. And we are, we are on that list, right? Yeah, it makes me thankful that because of the universal, the universal nature of Christ now, right? We, we read of Christ in the particular in our scriptures. Yeah. In a particular moment, we've got this person, Jesus, in the story who has a limited attention span, it seems like. But the universal Christ, the good news of the, universe, the universality of Christ is that Jesus can via the Holy Spirit, via the very presence of the triune God, 
be present to each and every person. That's the good news, is that God loves us so much to make it possible that there is no hierarchy. There's no one who gets paid attention to first over and against somebody else. It's this weird, we have this like three in one God and this weird like holy math that yeah. none of us can really wrap our heads around. It's almost like for Jesus, uh, everyone is first. Yeah. Everyone gets to be first, yeah. which we can't, the world doesn't allow us to really understand. Our limited nature doesn't allow us to understand what that means. But, but it's good news. It's good news. Yeah. And I do think there's a challenge in there. Yeah. So here's the challenge. So we were talking about this earlier this week. There's good news in this, but here's the challenge. The universality of Christ, the universal nature of Christ means that you and I are the body of Christ. It means we are challenged to also live in this way, to also care for people in this way, in a way that doesn't put people in priorities. We can't do triage all the time, right? We, we can't. And that is incredibly challenging because we live in a world that is shaped to do that. That is shaped to have us care for the greater good or the person who needs it most right now. And yet the challenge, and quite frankly, I don't always, face, I don't always meet that challenge. I don't always stop when I should stop and pay attention to the person who needs my attention right now. I'm not good in that way all the time. But that is the model that we get in Jesus And that is what we are called to do. That's the challenge. It is good news, but with the good news of the gospel also comes the challenge to live that. Thank God for the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, right? That's right. Thankfully, we don't have to do it alone. Thank God for grace, too, when we muck it up, because I do it all the time. And I... I hope I'm not the only one. You are not alone. I am definitely with you. It's like Jesus didn't have a wristwatch or something. He Mm -hmm. was never looking at what was next or what the time was. It's always the moment is now and it's time to take care of what is in front of me now. And the person that matters is the person who's here. Yeah. Yeah. That's ultimately, too, tied to resurrection hope. Yeah. Right? That that's how new life is experienced now. In, in the story, we have these ta- the, a taste of resurrection in the, the raising of Jairus' daughter. But the big resurrection is coming at Easter, right? So we get tastes of resurrection. We get glimpses of resurrection. We get to experience those. And we get to embody those when we take the time to, to serve, to connect, to to just even have a few words, that's giving life and hope to people who, who pretty desperately need it, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. You good? I'm good. All right. I'm, I'm glad to end with we get to experience resurrection hope now. All right, let me, yeah. let me pray for us then. God, I thank you for this sacred conversation. I thank you for this this story that is two stories, this, this uh, wonderful Oreo that both gives us hope in the good news that is you and the way that you love the world and the challenge to us to do likewise, to love the world in the same way. God, I ask that you forgive me for the many times that I have and that I will not do as Jesus did. I thank you for your grace 
that you continue to love me in my failures. And I thank you that there are continued opportunities to be successful, to take the time to love people well. I thank you for this church whose core values, whose mission is rooted in that kind of love, in that kind of inclusion. I thank you for the reflection of resurrection hope that we get to be because of that. Continue to help us to grow into purveyors of that resurrection hope and love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and all the holy names of God. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to now take a few moments to share the peace of Christ with one another, to stand and greet one another, say peace be with you and also with you. And we'll take some time to move about the room and do that. And then when you hear us begin to sing Spirit of the Living God, we invite you to come back and sing that with us and we'll return to the space and continue in prayer. For now, greet one another with the peace of Christ.